I had said earlier that a theme that would run through our service this morning would be that of unity, and perhaps that is the, the greatest cry of our day, is for unity. In order to reach this destination, the world around us has jumped into this moving vehicle of conformity to arrive at the empty destination of a culture of no distinctions. There can't be any differences among us. We can't think differently. We can't feel differently. We're supposed to all be very uniform in our reactions and our approach to life. There can be no distinctions. God's people, however, drive a different vehicle towards their destination of unity. The features in this car set itself apart from every other vehicle on the road. Its distinctive characteristics, while being completely unattractive to those that are looking for the ride, have proven to be the only reliable features to help the passenger arrive at their destination. The problem is that many in the church... Hear what I'm saying? As we are in our own culture, we are embracing, as Rob Dreher describes in his book, the Benedict Option this way. He describes a sneaky kind of secularism to the point where the Christianity, quote unquote, taught there is devoid of power and life. It has already happened in most of them. In 2005, he cites sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Lindquist Denton Examine the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers from a wide variety of backgrounds. Why are we talking about a study on teenagers? Because teenagers are people too. No, I'm just kidding. Because they are. They are people too. Sometimes I need reminding of that, but they are people too. But because the teenagers of 2005 are the adults in our churches now, right? So what they found was that in most cases, teenagers adhered to the mushy pseudo-religion the researchers deemed, the authors of this study deemed, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Deism is an acknowledgement of God, a study of God, a moralistic, therapeutic deism. <clears throat> they, they, um, I'm going to need to clear a frog here in a second. They termed it MTD. So that's what I'm going to come back to on a few different occasions is MTD. MTD has five basic tenets according to this study. One, a God exists who, who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and also by most world religions. <clears throat> the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Another tenet, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. Lastly, a tenet of MTD is that good people go to heaven when they die. Now, this creed, they found, is especially prominent amongst Catholics and mainline Protestant teenagers. Evangelical teenagers fared measurably better, but were still far from historic biblical orthodoxy adhering to the standards and the traditions and the teachings of a particular thing. Smith and Denton claim that MTD is colonizing existing Christian churches, destroying biblical Christianity from within, and replacing it with a pseudo-Christianity that is only tenuously connected to the actual historical Christian tradition. 
MTD, he continues, is not entirely wrong. After all, God does exist and he does want us to be good. The problem with MTD is both its in both its progressive and conservative versions is that it's mostly about improving one's self-esteem and subjective happiness and getting along well with others. It has little to do with the Christianity of scripture and tradition, which teaches, see if this sounds familiar from second Corinthians and Paul's instruction to the church, instead of the tradition and the scriptures that teach repentance, self-sacrificial love and purity of heart and commends suffering, commends it, builds it up, holds it up in high honor and esteem, suffering the way of the cross as the pathway to God. Though superficially Christian, MTD is a natural religion of a culture that worships the self and material comfort. While the church is called to do battle against satanic onslaught from outside, it is finding itself too weak to engage in the battle because of the subtle disease within its ranks. The infection of MTD, this moralistic therapeutic deism has so infected our culture, our church culture, that we don't know what to think, what to say. We don't know who we're going to tick off. We don't know if we're, it's PC to say these things, even in our own midst. We don't know what penance, what, what punishment are we going to receive? What price are we going to pay? We're worried about offending those who are riding in a vehicle headed to nowhere. The experts that claim we're moving towards unity are actually going Nowhere. It's appropriate and it's necessary for believers in the church to unapologetically stand for truth. It's appropriate. It's necessary for believers in the church to unapologetically drive out those who are engaged in active peddling of a false gospel. However, the believer needs to be to needs to wisely discern between those that are responsible for pushing bad doctrine, pushing MTD, pushing all this therapeutic deism, this this cultural malaise and everything. The, that person who is guilty of setting that as their agenda versus the person who is just caught up in it. Those are the people that we would show compassion to a rescuing lifesavers we throw out as they're drowning in those waters. Paul, as we discovered last week in 2 Corinthians, as he, as he brought us up to verse 13, he is reaching out to these folks. He's, he's dealt with them. He's led them along. And then he kind of compassionately closes it out by saying, I've, I've opened my chest before you. I've laid my heart bare. Everything that I'm thinking, everything that I am, it's all just been, I put all my cards on the table for you to take a look at and see what you're walking into. And I want you to do the same for me, Corinthians. I want you to respond in kind, but I know you can't. I know that you're, you're caught up in your, your pagan associations. I know that the, the in crowd still matters to you. I know that the, the uh, persuasions of their arguments and just sort of, why is Paul so cranked up? Why do you have to work so hard at this? Why do you have to worry about this? Why, what's the point of suffering? All these things I, that I crave the approval of that crowd. Paul's saying, I know that's what you're infected with. You've been led astray by this. We've called them the whispering campaign. You know, the, 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 the ones that are actively leading the dissension in this church. They're saying, why are you following this guy? He's not, he's not cutting it. He's not, he doesn't have the resume that we want. All those things that we've been discovering over the many months that we've been walking through this letter. Paul is beginning to start to shift his focus towards those individuals to drive out the cancer that is infecting that church. 
Paul knows that there is this breach in their relationship that they won't fix until they change their affections. Remember that word? The things that their heart craves, the things that they love are drawing them away from the message of the Lord. Paul has dealt with this already in 1 Corinthians. He's already told them in in chapter 10 that you need to flee from idolatry. There were so many things going on there that he boils it down to. You're, you're, You're worshiping an idol, an idol of acceptance, an idol of approval, an idol of all of these things. And you're you're just basically bowing down and lighting incense to it. You need to flee from idolatry. And after he has this conversation, in our text, he takes this abrupt, deep dive to the heart of the matter. He says, do not, in verse 14, chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, I... those of you that have been around the Bible for a while, maybe you've been in church for a long time or you've heard a lot of preaching or you've studied the word, you know what what we use this phrase so often for in our um, application that we so often talk about it in the sense of marriage between a believer and an unbeliever and how that's just incompatible, will not work. We've talked about it in the business sense about you sign contracts and you go to lead a business with your own Christian values and you team up with somebody who doesn't think or align themselves with those values and you think that this business is going to go well. So we've used this phrase before in those settings saying it's it's impossible to be unequally yoked that way, that the partnership dissolves, that the, the common ground uh, goes away. And that is apt and, and, and very applicable warning. But it is not the context that this phrase is shared in. Paul isn't talking to marriages in this particular context, though those things do apply. So you might be in a particular situation that has some of that going on and you have lots of questions. You want to know what the Lord's word says about these things. How am I supposed to conduct myself? I, I trust that this will help you if you read between the lines and you make broader application than just what I'm specifically saying here this morning. This phrase comes from uh, Deuteronomy 22.10 where God had told his people, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Isn't that profound? Now, I don't know anything about agriculture. I barely eat vegetables. So I don't even know where they spring out of, you know. But I know that if you put an ox and a donkey together in this yoke, this thing that kind of binds their necks together to do the same job, it ain't going well. Because I know what a donkey is bred for and I know what an ox is bred for and they're not the same things. Not the same kind of work. They have different natures. They are different breeds entirely. They have different characteristics. Their, their, their body frames, their height, their, their staminas, their interests. Who knows what the donkey's looking at versus what the ox is? I don't know what they care about. I can guarantee it's not about the same thing. They have different roles and we should expect different outcomes based on those differences. They're meant for different work and it's unreasonable, hear this, it's unreasonable for us to expect the same outcome out of such two different, two such different creatures. Barrett would say it like this. He says, you must not get into double harness with unbelievers. Don't lock yourself up in that stock. I don't know if that's even what it's called. I don't even know. Again, I don't eat vegetables. And so uh, you, know, you get, don't get into that stock and move together thinking that those things are going to come out the same. There'll be different paces, different strides. We should expect different outcomes. 
So what does unequally yoked not mean? As we said, this isn't strictly about marriage and business, though those things do apply. Especially after we play out the, the, the principles of this, you'd have to go, okay, so how would we expect that a marriage, the most intimate of all human relationships, to, to work that well in this uh, situation? And keep in mind, too, that we most often refer to that as somebody who's contemplating getting into that relationship. That there's not going to be any instruction you're going to hear from me today that if you're currently in that, you should find a way out. So keep that in mind. What unequally yoked also is not is a weapon in theological debate or when we have differences in how we interpret the scripture. There are the essentials. We know that Christ is the son of God. We know that the Holy Spirit seals the believer until the day of redemption. We know that those things are doctrines that we should agree on. But but whether or not, you know, I see a particular area of doctrine with this nuance and everything, I can't say to you, we can't be friends anymore because we're unequally yoked. We have different ideas. That's not what that means. And it's certainly, most certainly, please hear this. I was questioned on this after the first service, and so I'm going to pause and say this slowly. This does not mean a disassociation from sinners. There isn't an element of this that we just remove ourselves, and we're going to get more detail about that. So what does unequally yoked mean? It means that there's this conformity with false gospel peddlers in the context that Paul's writing. Remember, he's writing back to the church to say, you've been listening to this whisper campaign too long. Put them out. Be done with them. You don't have any partnership with them. There's, there's nothing that you guys have in common. They're, they're peddling a false gospel. They're watering down the truth. They're putting tradition on it. They're not following the sacrificial saving grace of Jesus Christ. So don't crave their approval. Don't be drawn into false arguments. Reject liberal moralizing theories of the atonement. Now, beyond our context, beyond what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, we can understand that this is a relationship, unequally yoked, is a relationship that compromises standards of godly character. It's a relationship that potentially jeopardizes your Christian testimony. I'm going to give us a different word other than just unequally yoked. I want this word to kind of be at the top of your list as we're going through this because I think it relates very clearly to what we're talking about. Think of the word today, distinction. Distinction is different than isolation. That'll be the thing we need to remember. So Paul is saying, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. If we were to say why, his answers would come in three parts. In this text, we're going to get the first answer, and it's simply because it's no longer in our nature. As Christians, as, as bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, it's no longer in us to even have this relationship anymore. So let's see. He asks uh, uh, five rhetorical questions here that are going to highlight some things for us. He says, for what partnership has righteousness, which is what we are now, we have the righteousness of Christ, the rightness. We have the perfection of Jesus put on us that we didn't earn, but because of his death, the substitutionary atonement, he places it within us. We have the righteousness of God. So what partnership has that righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light, which we are? Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And the worst thing that you can do is put a bushel over that. A basket over it so that no one would see it. You, as, as, as containment of Jesus Christ in your life, are the light of the world. So what fellowship has light with darkness? 
You turn a light on and darkness has to run. They don't try to hang out in the same space. Now, it was interesting when I came across this next word, um, I, I got to do some study because it's my day job. So I was looking something up and it was kind of interesting to me. I don't know if you realize how old cars really are. If you know when they were first manufactured, I'm going to show you that the Bible says it's it's much, much earlier than that. Because it actually occurs um, in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is coming down on the disciples. And it, the, the scripture says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, that um, they were all meeting together in unity and in one accord. Let that, let that play out. Let it bless you today. I, I dove right into this pretty hard and you guys are like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to throw in a dumb dad joke just to, and I really prepared that. I really, really prepared that. I've heard that poor joke since I was like nine. So I'm sorry about that. What accord has Christ with Satan? That's another, that's Belial. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? You and I are believers. We're not full knowledgers. We step out in faith, even in the things that we don't quite comprehend, knowing that he who is truth has never let us down yet. Why wouldn't we trust that what he's saying is true? And so we believe. And he's saying, what, what uh, portion, what common ground, what space do we share is how that we could define that word portion. Uh, what common ground does a believer, someone who's willing to step out in faith and, and comprehend in faith, try to the things that we can't comprehend? To still act in obedience on the things that we can't make sense of with an unbeliever who says, no, I just can't wrap my head around that. I'm out. How can you share the same space? <clears throat> what agreement has the temple of God with idols? When this is what we're going to talk about a lot when as Paul gets into the Old Testament here, when you and I are in Christ, we have received the Holy Spirit that he moves in, that he embodies the believer and that he walks with us, we are the temple of God. So, so what agreement, if you had in the same temple, you had the true living glory of God, and then you have these little trinkets that you're lighting incense to. Why would they share the same space? It's dumb. What agreement do you have with any of those things? But you see the nouns that are preceding these descriptions. And it starts to spell out to us that the believer is calling. Who are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be partners together. We're supposed to have fellowship with one another. We are supposed to be in the same Honda. Please help me out here with that. Now, the reality of that word, it's really beautiful because we get the word symphony from the original of that word accord. And you picture what happens in a symphony. I know I might be stating the obvious, but you have 50, 60, 70 piece orchestra. And they're all studying the same little black dots going up and down, connected to others with rests, pauses, uh, timing, the time signature spelled out, the, the when to repeat and go back. And, and you can get all of them in one room looking at individual sheets saying the same thing, and it's bringing them all together in something we enjoy to listen to. Same thing happens with smaller bands or rock bands or something like that. People start jamming and they play the same chords and it unites and brings together. And you go, I can't believe we're making this music together. It's unity. It's, it's common ground. It's bringing these things together. That's what a chord is. 
Each of these uh, nouns describe us having something in common. We have common ground. We share a place, our portion. We have agreement. We, we come to terms. We consent with one another. Even if I don't know you, but I know that you're in Christ, I've got something to work with. Whenever I sit down and talk to people in my office or here in the aisles or something like that, one of the first things I want to know is what's your relationship with Christ like? It helps me know what I'm working with. If you say I don't have one, it doesn't mean the conversation stops there. It's just a different conversation. It's not in our nature to be compatible with darkness, with Satan, with discord, with any of those things. Second Peter 1 says, He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's a new nature that we now possess. We partake in it, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It is simply incompatible to say it over and over and over again, to partner or share with those who are not in Christ. So Paul strengthens it. He continues in verse 16. He says, for we are the temple, not the general building that the the worshipers would congregate in, but the most holy section of the temple, the part where God's glory would come and rest and be present. And he'd move in on the intimacy that comes with that. This is what God, this is what Paul is saying that that God is, is saying to us, that we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, and he goes to quote these Old Testament passages, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul's doing something brilliant here, really kind of under the radar screen for you and me, but for the listener of that day, perhaps a little bit louder, a little bit more on the nose. He's taking two quotes from Leviticus, one from Leviticus 26 and one from Ezekiel 37, and he's blending them together to make a very profound point. The quote from Leviticus 26 is, I will make my dwelling among you. It's very possessive, very kind of local. You know, you think if you're one of the children of Israel and you're hearing this, God's going to come stay with us. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. That's good news. Not angry with us. And I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. It's this very singular kind of conversation going on. And then Paul um, mashes that together with Ezekiel 37, where God says, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God. They shall be my people. And by combining the passages, Paul is strengthening among you or shifting it to among them, signifying to the church, to the Corinthians that are listening, that we are now experiencing the fulfillment of the promise that God had made all those years before. That means it's us. Paul, you're talking to us. You know who we are. We're terrible at communion. We're doing all kinds of crazy things. And Paul is saying that those that possess Christ, those that are in him have this promise. It's not in our nature. We're incompatible. Secondly, the reason why we would not be unequally yoked is simply because God commanded it. Sometimes this is good for you and I to just simply do because he said. We want explanations to everything. We want promise of results. I want a YouTube video that tells me how to get there, how to change the part out. I'm in an information culture. I want it broken down for me step by step. Sometimes God says, don't do this. 
And I have to humble myself, submit to the fact that he knows a little bit more about things than I do. Maybe I'm going to zip it and just do. So Paul shares the commandment of God in verse 17. He says, therefore, still quoting an Old Testament passage, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. Remember the word distinct, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. To the Old Testament ear, Isaiah 52, 11 is ringing out. God is speaking to the captive nation, leaving Babylon and returning to their own land. And he's saying, when you establish yourself, when you're moving out from among them, don't touch any of the nastiness. Keep your hands off all that stuff. I'm setting you up better than this. You don't need to go back to any of this. Don't touch the unclean thing was a warning of defilement that was all spelled out in their law about you can't touch a dead body. If you do, now you've got to be outside the camp. You've got to cleanse yourself. You've got to go through all this ritual to be seen as ceremonially clean. Don't touch any festering sores. How disgusting. I mean, I, I don't know if when you read your Bible, if you're morning, night, something like that. But trying to get through the scriptures cover to cover, and I'm going through these passages that are laying out all these things. I'm like, man, I would have been really good in this system. He's saying, don't touch it. I can't even read about it. Like I'm grossing out just seeing the words on paper and they're saying, don't touch that. I'm like, no problem. I'm staying away. I probably would have been ceremonial clean all the time. I don't want to touch the day. I don't want to touch your festering sore. Keep it away from me. It's gross, isn't it? The Bible is relatable. Just saying. But the new covenant application, the new covenant that you and I live in is one of distinction. It's the separation of God's people to live among others differently. Don't touch or associate with that which will compromise our testimony or lead to disobedience in the commands of God. I had somebody earlier say to me, um, I don't know if it was right for me to avoid this particular group of people. I feel badly that I'm avoiding them, but I don't feel strong enough in their midst. And I said, I think that's what you're getting at. I think there's wisdom in that, that if you don't think you can influence, if you think you're getting tainted because of the presence of that, then you don't just stay there and just say, well, we'll see what happens. That the Lord says, don't touch to, to remove yourself from that. It isn't because I don't want to get any on me. You guys are so gross. It's because I can't stand up in it. I can't face the temptation. I can't fight it on my own, that we live distinctively amongst them. But separation in today's climate is such a buzzword. It's such a hot topic. All kinds of opinion and abuse to the subject and misunderstanding and everything that you and I need to set our hearts straight on what it means to live separately. And so Philippians 2 helps us out with that. Paul says in verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is the biblical concept of we are in the world, but not of the world. We are to live among them differently. For those of you that are new in Christ, some of that incubation period might be needed for you. Now, the Lord has done all kinds of things through the history of the church on the enthusiasm of someone who's new in Christ your life has been turned upside down. Your eyes are open. The weight of the sins that you've been carrying and the burdens are lifted. And you're like God's cheerleader. You're, you're energetic. You're obnoxious in all the great ways. And you can't wait to tell all your family and friends, go do that. 
This is not a, an injunction against that. It is not a command to say, keep your mouth shut and stay away from them. Just understand that typically what happens is there's a period of time where we're out there spreading the good news of the gospel and what Jesus has done. And then that starts to quiet down. And those influences want to start creeping back in on me. And those old friendships be like, okay, let's get over the Jesus thing and stuff. Let's go, let's go do our thing. Let's get back to life as we knew it. And we are often not strong enough to be able to resist that. And so I often caution new believers to, uh, to find a time, a bit of incubation, if you will, to grow in your faith, to strengthen your soul, to be able to withstand the attacks of, of the enemy. The devil is not happy that all of your burdens have been lifted. He's not letting you go easily. And so it's important for us to consider that. You might want to ask yourself the question, who are my greatest influences and who should they be? You might ask yourself the question, do I appease the culture around me or do I impact it? If you're in the appeasing stage, you might need to take a step back a little bit and strengthen up. Now, to the seasoned Christian, to those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a while, maybe you've gotten comfortable in the settings of your church family, maybe you've become mature in your understanding of the scriptures and things, please understand that we are also facing great temptation, but from a different direction. Separation is not the same as isolation. You and I are called, those that are stronger, those that are mature, are called to be influencers, not avoiders. So I ask myself the question, am I avoiding the sinful uh, people that are around me because of my condemnation of them? Because I just think, oh, they're so wicked, they're so disgusting, they're so whatever. So I get on my high horse and distance myself from them. Maybe I distance myself from them because I'm afraid that somehow it's going to get on me. We have all kinds of strange ideas about this. Maybe I distance myself from all that because it's a lot of work. It's so much easier when I get around people I know. So much easier when I get around people that have a common thread of Jesus Christ in their hearts and their lives. We might differ on certain things, but for the most part, we agree. Safer with you guys. So much easier. Hear this, please. Distinction is a much harder call than distance. You and I are called to a very difficult task of living distinctly among them, not just avoiding them all together. The third reason why we would not be unequally yoked, Paul says, and this is the greatest reason, in my opinion, in the text, is because of the promises given. We continue in verse 17. Paul says, still quoting God in the Old Testament, he says, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The promises of God are coming in the two areas that you and I, since the creation of man, have needed the most. God's promise for intimacy, a close relationship with our creator is being offered in this promise. He even said to us in verse 16 that that he would make his dwelling among us, that he would walk with us. You picture Adam and Eve walking in fellowship with God in the garden. I mean, instant access, if you get to ask God any question, what would you ask? And yet they had that every single day. Whatever occurred to them, he says, I will be theirs and they will be mine. There's an intimacy being promised here that we can't find anywhere else. And then also he gives us an adoption which meets our need of belonging. I want to know that someone's got my back. I want to know that somebody took me in, warts and all. 
that they don't care about where I came from, the station life. You see exactly who I am and you take me anyway. We, very, we know very few people that are willing to do that in our lives, don't we? And yet God is saying in verse 18, he says, I'll be your dad. You be my kids. I'll see it for all that it is. I'll, I'll be with you. I'll care for you. I'll take you and I'll, I'll wrap you in. God is saying, I promise that I will be there with you. So what does Paul conclude in verse 1 of chapter 7? He says, since we have these promises, I mean, come on, beloved people. You understand this? What everything that he just laid in our lap and he said, this is yours for the taking. Paul is dumbfounded by this and he says, guys, listen, please, friends. Because of these promises, not because he's going to squash us like a bug, not because he said, if you don't do it, I'm coming after you. But because of the promises that he's given to us, let us cleanse ourselves from all this disgusting stuff that that taints us through and through. That's what it means by body and spirit, that the the outer that we experience from all of our sin and the inner what it does to our souls. I mean, if we had the promises of God and we're tipping the scales here, it's not even incomparable. What he's promising to us meet the very needs of our life. And yet we sell out our lives for all the false beauties of this world. Brothers, sisters, beloved, he's promised us so much. Just let's just get over this stuff, he says. Let's stop making such an issue about how am I going to do it. Let's just weigh in on the promises of God cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, I lo- I'm, we're wrapping up here in just a couple minutes, but I, I love a response that John Piper had to a question. He was in an environment where people should know better. They're all studiers of the word of God. They're Bible college students or everything. And they were submitting to him. John Piper is a, a great preacher in America and really well-respected. They were submitting to him their questions and they didn't have to put their name on it. And he got a question from one of the students that said, uh, Dr. Piper, how am I supposed to finally shed all the temptations of the flesh? Why can't I seem to get them out of my, I'm here serving the Lord. I'm trying to focus on ministry. And yet they keep coming knocking on my heart. I don't know how to get over these things. And he could have responded in a way that could have been very judgmental. What's wrong with you? You know the Bible and you don't know how to get over this and all this kind of stuff. He was so compassionate. And, and I don't have his direct quote. I'm going to give you what I remember him saying. He says, you will not effectively remove the impurity in your life until you desire the beauty of Christ to an even greater degree. In a sense, he could have been quoting what Paul is saying, that all the things that plague us and follow us around, the problem is we haven't tipped the scales enough on adoring and welcoming the promises of God in our life, that his presence, that his communion with us, that his dwelling in us and adoption of us doesn't mean as much to us as those other things. That's why we crave the other lesser things more than we dwell and desire that. We often think that we need to scrape ourselves of our own stuff so we can present ourselves to God. But holiness being set apart for God does the cleaning out for us. And when Paul says that we're going to bring this holiness to completion, it's a bit of a strange phrase here. So let me just illustrate it as we wrap up. Holiness comes knocking on our door and says, I'm here to clean up. Where do I start? Now, for all of us, we're like, okay, kitchen, laundry room, the hardest places to keep going, right? Wait till you, you know, if anybody has nine children, 
Anybody in the room? No kids. Sorry, kids, I'm throwing you under the bus. Kids, just use one glass a day. It's not going to kill you, you know? So the, the glasses in the laundry, you just never, listen to me, I make it sound like I'm the one cleaning it all up. Anyway, um, holiness comes in and says, where do you want me to start? And we're like, oh, kitchen, please help us out over here. We really need that and everything. And then laundry over here, come over here. And, and I, I, as I was walking through the living room, I noticed that, yeah, that would be great. You know, it could vacuum straighten out. We welcome holiness into our life. And then holiness starts to get a little intrusive and says, you got any closets? I'm like, mm, not sure. <laughs> Don't know what I want to say about that. Well, I think you'll be much better off if you let me in and see some of the closets too. Holiness starts moving through all the uncomfortable places and holiness says to us, listen, you can trust me with your closets. There's nothing I ain't seen before. You hear that? We think that we can keep it all hidden from God and in his grace and mercy, he says, just show it to me. Let me clean it out. My God has has promised to dwell with you. And you won't let us in. And then after holiness has gone through the closets, it's so complete, so thorough. It says, got any sheds on the property? How's your garage looking? Just and you're like, man, this guy's relentless. I'm getting my bang for my buck here. When Paul says that we're allowing holiness to be brought to completion or maturity, it's because it means that we're letting holiness be thorough in our hearts. Are you? Let me finish, third finish now, sounds like. Five simple statements for us to take home with us. Embrace your nature of incompatibility. If you are in Christ, you are incompatible with the things of darkness. Did I say that you can't uh, uh, be in their presence? No, I didn't. Drive out those, this is more to the point of the text, drive out those who sell a feel-good gospel. Do not entertain them in your ear. Don't allow them in your church. Don't don't uh, try to um, uh, have just these mild conversations about, well, we're going to agree to disagree. If they are actively peddling a distraction from the cause of Christ, we drive them out because they are trying to bring a cancer to the unity of the body. Going easy on that does not work. For us individually, we are to practice separation without segregation. Another person had said that it was like contact without contamination. You and I should desire the presence of Christ more than the things that typically draw us away and infect us. And then lastly, I would say that unity with Christ and within the body, the church, must be our top priority. And you and I get each other right, when you and I draw closer and we, we drive in the same Honda, then the world outside starts to see that we're getting our act together, that we're covering one another's sins and forgiveness and we're reconciling and they crave it and they want it and they pursue it as we're shining our light. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer together. Lord God, I want to thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Lord, for your spirit that will go home with us that will cause us to remember the things that you want us to focus on, that will allow us to focus on the things that we need to adjust and change in our lives and in our allegiances. Lord, I pray for an encouragement amongst your people. I pray you'd give them strength. They are lights in a very, very dark world. And they beat themselves up much more than you do. And Lord, I just pray that you would grant them peace and rest. I pray, Lord, that you would bring them Allow them to bring holiness to completion in their life. May we walk differently among them, Lord. 
Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.